Welcome to Faith Restructured. I'm Cole. And I'm Mike. Here we cover topics on faith, deconstruction, and reconstruction. We discuss books that have helped us through the process, and we'll interview some friends and experts along the way. Let's jump into today's episode. So that was definitely just a super formative part of my upbringing. Would you say the same for you? When did you yeah. start at your school? I started in first grade and went all the way. One upping me again. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but no, I exactly the same kind of thing you just shared there. Independent fundamentalists, we would call Bible believing church, which is like <laughs> <laughs> what church isn't Bible believing. Um, and I think, right, like you said, um, every every course we did had like scripture in the margins. Uh, every textbook we had had scripture in the margins. We had to memorize Bible verses as part of like, that was uh, something you had to do every single week was take mm -hmm. a, a Bible verse test. Right. And then, yeah, we had Bible, we had to be in chapel every uh, week, um, which I'm sure a lot of people listening have either had a similar situation, or maybe if you're in Catholic school, something similar, um, I would say the one thing that I look back on in that time as being very formative in a bad way was I don't think I, because everything came from that perspective, uh, that uh, kind of independent fundamentalist perspective in, in the school situation, I don't think I was well prepared for school uh, or for college um, rather. Uh, Shocker. In the sense that like, I think I wrote two papers on any sort of research Dude, level. Me too. Um, I remember yeah. <laughs> legit, there was a class <laughs> my junior year of high school and I had to write a paper with in-text citations. I went, I never learned this. I never, I'm just not yeah. doing it. I literally wrote the paper with no citations. And I got <laughs> like an 85. It was like, it would have been a hundred if you put citations in, which is also a joke. You should never get a hundred on a paper. If you are, yeah. then your professor's lying or teacher. Well, and I got to college. Like I was spinning. I was in the spin. Cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I would say like, I, I, I really didn't even have a ton of typing skills. Like it was something that we, I remember doing in high school, but it wasn't something that we really focused on. Like, again, the focus was really on scripture and knowing it well. I can say all of the books of the Bible in order in one breath. And I couldn't type by the time I got to do college. It. I'm do not it, do right it right now. now. I can't, I can't, I can't. Some things are le better left off of the internet. Um, but the same thing with reading, like because of the way that some of those places approach um, media, I guess, or or even just uh, books. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we could only read books that were approved through the school. And so I, and I don't say that in, in really a bad way. It's just the fact that a lot of the books you read in high school wouldn't have been approved um, to be on a reading list for us as kids. Like I was reading autobiographies about preachers, or there was a couple of books that I could read where um, the focus was, or they were more fictional. Uh, but really we weren't allowed to get into that stuff too much, which is kind of funky. Yeah. So it sounds like we were both spiritually sheltered on some level, which, you know, people yeah. ask, I remember I graduated with nine other people and I had to write a paper in college talking about like my experience with, uh, 
with at school. Academia I graduated with four other people. So, well, I was valedictorian out of 10 people. <laughs> well, I was weren't. salutatorian out of whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All this to say my teacher, I mentioned like, I was basically saying it doesn't feel like an accomplishment to be valedictorian when there's only nine other people, mm-hmm. especially in a private Christian school. And my professor in college took points off said mike this has to be a true story you can't make up details to make it more interesting <laughs> i was like bro i'll bring you the yearbook because it's yeah, only like no. <laughs> a tenth of an inch thick because of how it was a pamphlet we were <laughs> yeah when you're a four sport athlete that's a good sign that you went to a private christian school like yeah man i'm also on the men's volleyball team and the soccer team and i'm in the theater productions and yeah this is all a lie like come on well and i think a lot of that uh while there's stuff we can critique in that and and people uh might look at that and go wow what a sheltered life it really set us up for the next kind of phase in our story which was what are we going to do after high school what are we going to do like what would we want to do in college and i think for both of us it was kind of clear that we had great mentors in our life um all the way through uh, middle school and high school. And we just saw that as a, as a unique opportunity that we could turn around and give back. And, and that could be our job or our profession uh, was to yeah, work with students. For sure. Cause I think, although I probably disagree with the three or four main mentors in my life at that time now on all mm-hmm. kinds of technical details about theology and Bible, what was never in question for me, and it still isn't to this day, is how much they cared about me as a human, mm. right? Yeah. They always have my well-being at, you know, and they're my my best interest at heart. They always are checking in and making sure I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they were huge supports to me for a number of major life transitions. And so, like, I think that's what a good mentor is and what you know, so many people need, regardless of all the nitty gritty stuff of like, and what did they teach you about the Bible? Like, yeah, that stuff's kind of there. But what I remember is, hey, when I was going through it at 15, this person in my life was there. And that was really formative. So yeah, I grew up specifically in like a rural farm community setting. And so a lot of those people in my life were not only somebody who was a mentor for me, but they were my best friend's parents or they were my aunt and uncle, or they, you know, they had all of these different ties in the community to me. Uh, so to, to boil it down and just say that it's about this one thing would be such a lie, uh, that that would be the, the thing that I would define that relationship by or whatever. Yeah. So I think as we start to transition into the deconstruction zone, one, one place where I began not to question really everything I'd ever believed. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, at the end of high school, I was part of this kind of youth revival weekend called Chrysalis. And I think it's a Methodist mission Mm. or uh, ministry rather. Um, But basically it's just like this kind of secretive, low-key kind of cultish, but it's not when, once you do it, but that's always a good sign of a cult. They're like, it's not a cult. If you do it, you just have to experience it. I'm like, yeah, go bro, to the gym what, for snacks and Kool-Aid. <laughs> that's what everyone in a cult says. Like, just join. <laughs> it's not a cult. Um, but Chrysalis was like this really like bizarre experience of my faith that I'd never had, where it was very shaped around. Yeah, there were some ideas, but it was so focused on experiencing the Holy Spirit and experiencing community in a radical way. And there were a lot of weird spiritual practices 
at the time that now I look back on and go, wow, that was so formative. Like, um, and a lot of experiences I shared there, I think that is actually what planted the seed for me to start questioning my upbringing of like, not that I'm mad, I grew up as a Baptist fundamentalist, but rather to say, maybe this isn't the final answer on all of these ideas and questions about God. Cause I knew there were things I disagreed with my church about, but I still loved the community at the time, but chrysalis and that experience on those weekends and getting plugged into that community, um, not only gave me more mentors, but it also gave me, um, a place to really process where the experiences I was having was not necessarily lining up directly, uh, or, or succinctly with the ideas that were put into my, my head growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, as maybe the way that we transition to the deconstruction time for both of us, it happens in some way, shape or form when we're at Eastern, um, university, which is where we both went to college. And, um, yeah, Mike, when's like the moment where the fit hits the shan for you or things don't always make sense anymore? Uh, yeah. I mean, you- side note, clearly Cole went to a private Christian school because that's a really good uh, uh, <laughs> colloquial phrase to not use any bad words, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's like we can't say the F word, but we can say frick. You <laughs> my, know? Favorite, my favorite TikTok is the one where the kid like gets angry and goes in his room and then I can only imagine comes on as loud as possible. <laughs> He's like screaming along to it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. Um, so reflexive too. Yeah. I think at Eastern uh, shout out for all of its flaws, but I love my time there. I do it again. Um, Eastern is a tiny little liberal arts college. So what that means is you're kind of learning from all different disciplines. That's the attempt at least. Um, even if you're only taking one or two classes in each of these general education courses. Um, So everyone that comes in has to take an intro to the Old Testament class, Bible 101, and then an intro to New Testament, Bible 102. And then I think you you get to choose any kind of theology class. Um, You have to take uh, one that's like more spirituality and then one that's more like actual church history or theology sort of stuff but yeah right so by the end of eastern even if you're like a pre-med student or you're you're just there really for sports or you're in business you end up taking one of those kinds of classes um, in theology and two of them in bible Mm -hmm. and i think that's where some of these seeds started to get really planted and i guess watered more for me in regards to questioning what I had already thought, because we started learning thing in, things in these Bible classes, and I was still holding on so tightly to, to like this rigid framework that was instilled in me growing up. And so uh, I just remember learning different things about Genesis um, or learning different things about um, the Gospels. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And I was really still holding on to the King James Version, which is like the old English style of the Bible. And my church was, they believed it was the KJB, King James Bible, because there are no versions. Were you that nerd who walked around Eastern with your KJB? Heck yeah. (laughs) Heck yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, And I I was, that was the hill I was going to die on. I remember like, um, yeah, my professor going, yeah, you should really read the NRSV. It's more accurate. I was like, no, it's not. This is the first English Bible. And one time we were reading a verse in class and I'm reading in my KJV and he says something to the effect of like, um, yeah, this building was raised. 
And my KJV said this building was destroyed or torn down. I was like, that's the opposite. See, that's the devil. I was told about how the devil changes these words and these other terrible translations. So I went up to him after Ugh. class, like, oh, I've PTSD. got him. Yeah, right. And I'm like, <laughs> explain yourself. And he just so casually said, yeah, the word raised, R-A-Z-E-D, <laughs> that, that means to destroy or tear down. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. I got my eye on you. And so there, I think learning some of those kinds of things, and there are all kinds of details, I'm sure will slowly come out over time. But um, the deconstruction for me began when I was started to get presented with so many ideas and facts that I, at first you can start to say, oh, this is a coincidence or, mm. oh, I'm not quite sure about that. Maybe there's some merit. And after that happens, 20, 30, 40, 50 times, you have to humble yourself and go, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. And it's usually a bad situation when you at 18 think you know more than like multiple PhD holding professors. <laughs> um, it's time to humble yourself at some yeah. point. Yeah, for me, I, I didn't have quite as early of an experience. And I think that was just merely because of the professor I had for uh, the intro to Old Testament, intro to New Testament classes. Um, like we said, both of us are Bible nerds. We came from schools where uh, in high school we were learning things that were, were and memorizing the things that were crazy. And so um, I think that professor really helped reinforce a lot of that stuff. He kind of focused more on the historical side of things um, rather than any of the actual digging into the text of scripture and those sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> mine was my, I guess my moment was I took, uh, there's actually two. So one is like more um, anecdotal. And then the other one is specifically with a class. So in a class uh, called biblical hermeneutics, hermeneutics, a big word that just says, how do we interpret scripture? Um, we were reading through a bunch of different um, prominent theologians at the time. And we, we had to reflect on them and just kind of share their uh, or reflect on their way of reading scripture and seeing how many different kind of <laughs> ways that people read scripture was interesting. And to see that not only that, but that I could find the value in all of the different ways that these people were reading scripture. I was like, Holy cow, how could anyone say that they have their handle on this? And then thinking back to the people who I'd listened to, um, whether it be at my church or at my school and saying, Oh, they're doing the exact same thing. They're just kind of claiming that they have some universal truth or knowledge in, in how they're doing this. Um, coupling that with just some like random facts that you find out when you're uh, reading through scripture, like it's kind of weird for Moses to write, uh, to say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, when it's all written from, he would have had to wrote most of it from a third person perspective that like the stuff that's about him. And then the other stuff he would have like, not even, even been alive for to know. <laughs> it just like, doesn't, right. it doesn't make Which any is, sense. That's something that both of us, like, this is a very common idea in more conservative biblical scholarship that mm. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which I, I don't know why that's so important. I, I'm <laughs> sure at some point, you know, there's, there's places where you can make that point. Right. So yeah. 
in those first five books, Moses literally dies and the book continues, right? <laughs> and it never says, and now I, Joshua, am going to pick up the rest of this book because right. Moses died. Right. There's also a point at which it says, Moses was the most humble man in all the world. And it's like, yeah, oh, very humble for you to let us yeah, know that, there's Moses. A, there's another part where it's like on the other side of the Jordan where Moses was, he did these things. So it's like the people in the promised land had to have written this because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. <laughs> right. So if you know, the argument, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay. Well, he dies. So who wrote the rest? Oh, someone else wrote that. So you are okay if someone else wrote mm -hmm. parts of this. Yeah. So maybe Moses only wrote parts of this, or maybe Moses didn't write anything and people are using his name for a type of authenticity or um, authority as they're writing it. It doesn't really matter to me where yeah. you land on that, but it is hilarious that like, to me that at one point you're like, no, he wrote all of it. So was he foretelling his death and then like <laughs> guessing about what's happening? I, I don't Explain. really understand. Also, yeah. was Moses at creation? Is that what was happening? <laughs> oh, God created light. Hold on, God, I can't see. Can you give me some light so I can write this down? Like what? Yeah, and we just, you know, you come up against those a ton in the in that time. So we have like, the, like you said, the Genesis stories, there's different accounts of the resurrection, who was the actual first person to see everything, that sort of stuff. First uh, and second Kings is written like during the time of that, like the setting of what's happening in first and second Kings. And then first and second Chronicles is written from like a different perspective, but it's all talking about the same thing. And this is like stuff I was just blowing my mind because I was like, I didn't know any of this. And again, like, like we said before, we studied this stuff for a lot of our life. And so that was like one of the big things for me. The other thing for me was I was having a conversation with uh, two guys who uh, we're both mutual friends with and uh <laughs> When we were at Eastern, it was kind of like the uh, the law that allowed uh, same-sex marriage to happen uh, or to be legalized was, had just been passed. We were kind of going through human sexuality talks at Eastern. Um, they were studying it as faculty as well. And so it was a big hot button kind of topic. And so I sat down for lunch with my sandwich and these two dudes are going at it about uh, their, diff their differing views of things. And I'm, a, I'm sure you can figure out where I would have landed coming from a conservative fundamentalist independent Baptist church <laughs> where I landed on this thing. And I, this is something that I'd actually been kind of thinking about and struggling with and trying to at least have a good answer for. And so I was like, man, this kid who is all for gay marriage, I need to kind of set him straight. And so I was like, here's my, here's my elevator pitch and speech that, that nobody can poke a hole in. And, uh, so I, I let him have it. And at the end, he just kind of looks up from his meal and he goes, yeah, I really just, I don't believe that. And I was just like, what do you mean you don't believe that? That doesn't make any sense. It's a perfect argument and there, there's no holes that you can poke in it. So what do you mean you don't believe it? Uh, you must just be ignorant. And uh, what I came to realize is just like everybody has different opinions. But like I said, from the background that I had, uh, everybody's on the same page and you don't come into any diversity of thought. And so things aren't really questioned in those ways. So yeah, needless to say, deconstruction um, was a moment that I would say kind of happened later in my time at Eastern and unfolded um, more than was an actual moment that happened.
Yeah. And so I think this is another place where you and I differ a little bit because some people, for example, when it comes to the science of Genesis one and two, like, is it seven day creationism or is it evolution or how do we decide how we feel about that? There's not one day or specific moment where it's like, aha, I now believe this instead mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I think a lot of people had have a very rough and dramatic experience with deconstruction where yeah, they like, rigid. and yeah. I, yeah, I mean, really like the cliche of like glass shattering, right. Or a house of cards falling down. Um, I, I don't feel like that happened to me. It, it really felt much more gentle. Like, Oh, I mean, okay. Like that's fine. I, that doesn't really bother me all that much. It, it certainly changes the way that I think about things, but um, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, end up in a really dramatically um, painful process of deconstruction where it's almost like you're left with these questions and you don't know what mm-hmm. to believe anymore. And I think one of the the privileges I had being in my major um, was that I had a super strong support system between professors that were since we're in a tiny college, they're like, Hey man, yeah, come get a coffee with me. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Or we talked after class or we went to office hours and they knew you by name. So I'm talking to these experts in this field that are sharing very personally about how they came to understand these things. And then I also had the benefit of a lot of peers that are going through the same process as me and talking about this stuff every day. Like, wait a minute. Okay. So you're telling me this about Moses. You're telling me this about the gospels and about the resurrection. Like, how's this all work? Mm -hmm. And so there was never a a sense of isolation for me. Um, Would you agree that it was gentle for you or was deconstruction kind of a painful process for you? So in terms of Eastern, I thought the process went really, really smooth. And I almost had to live two different, not two different lives, but I had to only share certain parts of my life. I had to, I guess I had to compartmentalize things. Um, so the things I was learning at Eastern were great. The books I was reading at Eastern were great, but they better not come out of my backpack when I was at home, right? Um, because any of those sort of things were not really openly discussed. And if I was sharing anything, maybe an article at the time would have been on Facebook or something like that. Um, I definitely got the weird looks from family and friends and, and people like that from back home who just felt like I was betraying them, or maybe that I'd given up on faith or really, honestly, what it is, is they just didn't understand and they didn't really have the language to ask me questions about it or to be that support system. I think what, like you said, a lot of people are trying to do is find certainty in, um, in the deconstruction process. So if something doesn't make sense, they want the thing that makes sense. And then they think that now that they found the certainty, they are in the same place that they were before. Uh, they just now know the truth and people weren't telling them the truth. And so now that they know the truth, everybody can kind of let them in on the secret and the se- and there is no secret, right? That the people sometimes just don't understand and just don't know some of these things. And so I would say for me, like the aftermath of it at Eastern, I felt very, very good, very comfortable, very confident in uh, the deconstruction process. When I would go home, it was... It wasn't like I had a really strained relationships, but 
where we would have typically talked about faith or it would have been an open conversation, those doors were kind of shut. And if I wanted to, if I wanted to maintain those relationships, I kind of had to be on guard uh, a little bit. So that was hard for me, but so here's the interesting thing. And this is kind of like a personal question, I guess, but uh, I, in college uh, we met, Hmm. What, what would have been our first class? Like Genesis or Exodus? No, no, we definitely met early, but oh, we yeah, weren't yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. We met, so, I think we sure. met freshman year in a youth ministry, probably 102, which mm-hmm. is like adolescent culture. Yeah. But I don't think we got close until junior year when we took junior Genesis. Year. Yeah. And so I, like you said, we did know each other. So I got to kind of, <laughs> I guess, eavesdrop on you from afar. And so look at, looking back at those colleges, I really looked up to you. And I thought like you had everything together and like you tracked with the professors, you understood the books we read. Like I said before, I was sitting in the corner, like, I don't even know what this is saying. (laughs) Um, But uh, I was just kind of in a place that was a lot different. I think Um, once I started going through the deconstruction stuff, like I have no freaking clue what I'm doing here, but I am enjoying it. But I always thought "Mm, Mike's got this figured out. Is that true uh, or not? <laughs> well, Cole, I, I want to say you're not one of the most wise people I've ever met, but that's probably the most wise thing you ever did was look up to me. I think <laughs> I, I am an endless well of, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think I have lived for a long time by the motto, fake it till you make it. Mm. And so I would love to say like, oh, like this stuff wasn't hard for me because I just like, I learned so fast and I'm so smart that, you know, it just made sense. But in reality, I, the older I get, the more I realize I am a master procrastinator and I'm a master compartmentalizer. And so I think deconstruction was less intense for me because I just started going, Oh, that does raise some problems for me. I'm going to put this in this suitcase over here for now Mm. and just keep getting my grades in classes. And luckily after a while, those things started to string together and fit together. And so that helped me process things after the fact, but it was only because I could set it aside, which a lot of people can't do. And going back to um, what we were mentioning, I think one of the problems for deconstruction with people from Eastern in particular um, and colleges like it is that a lot of people had to take those intro Bible classes they started to have some ideas questioned or deconstructed, and then they never took another Bible class to mm-hmm. further that process to put it back together in some way. Um, and as a result, I know a lot of people, even in the youth ministry major, that like they finished school and they're like, I don't even know if I can go into ministry now because I don't right. know what I believe anymore, which is really sad yeah. to think about. Um, so I think there are, there are pros and cons to it. I think I lucked out in my situation where again, I had the support systems in place where I felt like I walked away feeling pretty good about the trajectory I was on. But no, I definitely didn't know everything that we were learning about. I didn't understand everything. I, there was one theology class in particular that I remember like feeling like a legitimate idiot. Like I walked out of class once crying, like teary eyed. My professor was like, you're not seeming like yourself and i'm like (laughs) really you know i love that man but um so it it was an interesting experience for me but i think to others it probably looked like i did have it together because uh, there was a lot of pride wrapped up in that like you don't want to sound like the person that doesn't know what you think 
which is one of the worst ways to actually learn. And I think that's why it took me so long to really grasp some of these things because I was so busy trying to maintain the um, image of someone that had it all figured out that. Yeah. I think that's like a, uh, an issue just in like when you come from the world that we came from growing up, that is part of it too. Right. It's like they're hyper-focused on how you act and behave and, and that sort of stuff. And so it, nobody can maintain that. Right. And so when it comes to like a, a, something like deconstruction, where it's like a crisis of faith, the way that we're kind of taught to handle that in kind of the conservative, whatever, independent fundamentalist kind of circle is like, it, like you said, is fake it till you make it. So while I may have known that I was falling apart, I probably looked like I had it all together to people too. (laughs) Right. Well, and it's because again, it's a product of the enlightenment in particular, where Okay, you grew up memorizing Bible verses. There's an answer for everything, right? Like, what do we do with uh, people? When do they get baptized? Oh, here's a verse about when to get baptized. And here's an answer. And here's an answer. So once some of those answers started to get questioned, I think a lot of people started going, oh, okay, I just need to find the right answers again, which is using the same template of uh, the enlightenment or this hyper obsession with finding answers or using reason and logic. And you're just using different words now. So it's the Mm -hmm. same outline and template when in reality, I think that's where the problem was altogether. So when I began that process, it was like, oh, so some of the things I learned growing up were wrong. I just need to find the new trivia facts to go on Bible Jeopardy and then I'll be good. When in reality, and maybe this is a good transition point, I think once you've deconstructed some of those ideas and maybe all of them, when you reconstruct or just construct mm-hmm. um, or restructure, it's not about finding all these rigid answers to, you know, what do you do if someone slaps you on the cheek? Well, clearly, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Well, culturally, there are a lot of ways to interpret that. It's not about this question and answer kind of faith, because again, that's not really faith. It's just intellect. It's just memorization. Let me memorize the right answers. And we all know how we feel when a politician gives a pre-recorded, you know, pre-written answer mm-hmm. that's so dry and inhumane and robotic. And you're like, that doesn't sound like real thinking. It sounds like you decided what you're going to say before I even asked a question. Right. I think reconstruction is about living in that liminal space or that in-between space or that kind of darkness and mystery. Not that you can't have beliefs or firm ideas in place, but rather you're willing to live in the uncomfortable tension of knowing there are multiple ways to interpret the different stories of the resurrection, right? And usually churches don't point out that there's multiple resurrection stories. They just go, oh yeah, the resurrection when the tomb was empty and this and that. Well, the tomb wasn't empty when Mary got there and thought Jesus was a gardener. I mean, Jesus was still there, right? And so there are different ways to interpret this. And, and on this podcast, I don't think you and I are here to say, and this is the right way. Mm-mm. We're trying to get away from that mindset altogether, right? To say, it's not about finding, oh, here's the right answer to plug into the problem. You have to get away from that, that template altogether in a lot of ways, because if it just becomes a process of filling in the right answers on your faith journey SAT, 
you're always going to hear different voices. And if your faith is only the product of which voice you like the most or trust the most, most, then it's not really a faith in God. It's a faith in who you trust most. And so in a weird way, you're putting your trust in, you might've grown up really conservative and now you you're really angry at those conservatives and you found some voices on the other side that you trust more mm-hmm. or maybe even vice versa and you're like yeah i don't like that thing i'm doing this now well in reality a lot of the time what i see is people they've replaced this authoritative voice on one side and replaced it with maybe one or two other voices on the other side yeah let's say the opposite and i think what we really want to aim at is somewhere in the middle of saying yeah there's a good thing about having faith in ideas and faith in certain things, but we can't let the rigidity of those ideas become the thing itself. Yeah. I think the way that maybe we can turn this to like, then what does it look like for us on the other side? And I think what you're saying is, is really valuable to that conversation because there's two things involved when it comes to deconstruction, at least in my perspective. And that is, there is like the reason, the knowledge, the information, and then there's the relationships and how that knowledge and that relation or in that reason plays into those relationships. And, and this came like those two worlds came crashing together for me in a class one time uh, with one of our <laughs> one of our favorite professors is a dear friend of both of ours now. Uh, but we were sitting in class and we were reviewing for the final on this thing. And it's kind of all this stuff that we've talked about, uh, some some big key moments in certain books of uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and he's kind of wrapping it up and he says like, okay, cool. Does anybody have any questions? And I raised my hand and I was like, this makes so much sense. Like I was like, like you kind of talked about, like this checks all the boxes. I have all of the answers. And I said, but what am I supposed to tell my dad? And very helpfully, this person said, well, you probably shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which he's right. Like at the time, I was not ready to have that conversation. And I honestly wasn't prepared for it because there is a side to uh, faith where if you don't change the template, which is I need the right answer because I've been told the wrong answer. If you don't change the template, then your relationships with anybody who associates on that other side fall apart. And I, I love my dad to death. So there's no way that I'm going to ruin that relationship. My, the, the things I'm learning here should not be something that, that ruins a relationship with my father. And so this stuff's got to make sense or the template has to change. right? Right. And so for you, now on the other side of deconstruction and like you said we we don't say that in the sense of it's over that we can't deconstruct anything else from now like we have all the answers that's not the point but the point is that you have to build some stuff you have to put some stuff back together stuff has to start making sense again uh, you have to have some things that you at least hold as as a uh, fruitful and helpful for your faith what does that what does that look like what's that journey been like for you yeah well i alluded to some of it i think I, I am someone that is very in my head and anyone listening that knows me mm-hmm. well is probably laughing. Like, yes, Mike is an overthinker. Um, he is just constantly like spiraling. And I think I just try to think out scenarios. So like when I primarily reduce my faith to that, it is comfortable, but it's also not fruitful. 
Um, mm. I enjoy it, but it probably doesn't actually yield a life like Jesus called me to live. Um, I know all kinds of you know, theological terms and theological debates and why we should really listen to one another when it comes to topics like predestination or whatever. Um, but is that changing the way I live? And so that's what like reconstructing um, what I believe has been so important because if what I believe is not translating to how I am living, and if it's not causing me to live more like Jesus, then it's null and void. What my favorite professor, or one of my favorite professors, I guess, from undergrad, uh, we he and I laughed a lot about um, just theology in general, because uh, I said, you know, I, I would say by senior year, you know, I think senior year of high school, Mike would pray for senior year of college, Mike's soul, because he'd be concerned that he was going to like go to hell yeah. um, because like my journey had taken so many twists and turns. And he always laughed and he's like, you know, that's such a powerful reflection though, because it reveals um, where that growth has occurred. Right. Mm -hmm. But something he said then that really just has moved me and challenged me since he's like, you know, Mike, in every measurable way, I am smarter than my wife. Like, uh, I have multiple degrees. She doesn't, I, you know, I've read all these work, you know, these different books in this office, probably three, four or five times over. And she doesn't even know what the doctrine of transcendence is. And, you know, I'm ad libbing a little bit, but he's making this point, like in all the ways on paper, you could measure his knowledge about theology to his wife's he wins. He's like, but you know what? At the end of the day, she lives more like Jesus every single day than I ever will be capable of mm -hmm. because I am so fascinated by the ideas that I mm -hmm. fail to translate it to loving people well. But she, from the moment someone steps into her life, whether it's a stranger at the supermarket or someone comes to our home for dinner, she showers them with the love of God in ways that I feel incapable of doing. And I envy that. And that has just stuck with me so much. And so when I reconfigure my own understanding of what faith should be or what restructuring my faith should be, I think of that. Like I can't allow ideas to take the um, precedence over the living out of those ideas. So <laughs> the biggest area where that has um, shifted for me is uh, what's called traditionally like spiritual disciplines, uh, which discipline can sound like a really bad word, especially if you've got some PTSD from a conservative background. <laughs> um, I'd say that half in jest and half very seriously. Um, but, you know, these different disciplines that have been done for centuries and millennia for people that, you know, didn't have access to a Bible to read because not everyone could read. And it'd be things like sitting in solitude or sitting in silence or waking up at 3 a.m. and reading the entire book of Psalms before breakfast or doing a practice called Lectio Divina, where you read the same passage of scripture four or five times over and reflect on which words or which phrases stand out to you and why each time or meditating. Um, these are all spiritual disciplines that through the ages have kept Christendom or Christianity alive and thriving and what worries me most is that in many Protestant churches, these kind of disciplines are either not talked about at all, or they are viewed as like really wonky and problematic. And back in that, um, you know, end of high school experience for me, that chrysalis retreat that, that I was on, 
even though they didn't call them spiritual disciplines, that's really what was capturing my, my spirit then was some of these activities. And so I think that's been and become one of the most crucial parts of me balancing my reconstruction journey is for all of the information I try to take in, because I love to read books and discuss them like we will here, I need to couple that with something that is actually transforming part of who I am. And you re you're really not transformed when you read something. It's when you put that knowledge into practice. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that um, one of the things that was hard for me coming out of Eastern and out of the deconstruction process really was, I don't know how to read this Bible now uh, for anything other than to look at it and go, hmm, that's an interesting fact. And that plays into this and that and this and that and this. <laughs> like I couldn't sit through a sermon and, and hear that person and what they were trying to share. Um, <clears throat> and so honestly, the best thing I had for me was in the summers, I worked on a farm and a lot of times I worked by myself or with a crew of one or two other guys and we were all separate, just picking tomatoes or something. And I just got to, I just got to think about a lot of these things and I got to then kind of reflect on everything that I would take in throughout the semester in the school year and allow that stuff to be kind of to become enmeshed into my life. And so, like you said, if this doesn't change you, what are, what is this about then? Like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't do anything in your life, it doesn't matter. And so the spiritual disciplines are really important. And uh, for me, like I said, not, not a huge reader at all. And the books I had access to really weren't good books to read. So once I had the ability to do that, it really changed my life. Um, and so that's been something that I've been really thankful for is the ability to, to um, read a, a wide variety of books and take notes and, and find out how that might lead me to be somebody better. I think this is a book that kind of, I think I turned you on too, um, but it was one that was really um, helpful in one area of my life. And that was looking at faith from a different perspective and looking at specifically what suffering and hope looks like from a different perspective. Um, it's a book by an Eastern grad, actually. It's called Just Mercy. And it's about uh, Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer and works with clients who are on death row, wrongfully accused or not in some, in some cases. And just his work in that process, his work at, uh, in, in the face of, of uh, the, kind of a, a racist South um, at the time and just how that all affected him and how he still had the hope to go forward. And not only that, but he shares beautifully about the lives of these people um, who he's serving. And it really just changes your perspective a ton on how, like what the kingdom of God looks like, who's invited to the kingdom of God. It's a lot of stuff from the backgrounds that we come from, that's really who's in, who's out. Um, and those people would typically be out. But um, after reading books like that, you start to question those sorts of things, which I think was, is, is really helpful in my life is to vary the voices and, uh, and the, and the experiences that, that I listen to. The other yeah. thing, the other thing has been, I'll just share this quick and then I'll give it back to you. Um, the other thing has, <laughs> has been, um, one area of my life that uh, I feel like I don't have a hold on at all is <laughs> finances. My wife is very uh, detail oriented in that direction, um, but she has really helped me to understand what generosity looks like 
um, from a faith perspective. And so we've been able to give back a ton. And I, I say that kind of in spite of me, like if it was up to me, we would be paying off our student loans so that we don't have to worry about those ever again. But uh, kind of taking the lead from my wife in that area of just like, no, scripture calls us to be generous people. Scripture calls us to be faithful people. And so we're going to be uh, generous and faithful with our finances as well has just been a way that has transformed me that I didn't, I really didn't even know that I needed because I would be the last person to say like, oh yeah, I have problems with money or, or anything like that. But when you're giving away the money that we're giving away and you're like, man, we could be paying off loans. Um, it really does help you put that into perspective and realize that it's not necessarily uh, something that, that we can't change in our lives or, or something that can't be transformed in our lives as well. But go ahead. Yeah, totally. I think you mentioned hearing a variety of voices and the problem with being in any one community, it, there are pros and cons, right? Like you live in one country or one state or one community or one church. There's so much camaraderie and companionship built, but you're also losing out on the experience of these other places, right? So you yeah. can't like logically have, um, you know, a thorough experience of every Christian denomination or every world religion. Like it's just, there's not enough time in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's important to do your best to be open-minded as you seek out voices from those other places, recognizing you will always be biased towards your own view, no matter how objective you strive to be or claim to be. Um, one, and that's, that's really part of why for, you know, our time together, um, on here, we want to share other stories. We want to share stories like we are today, but we want to share other people's stories too, because we recognize the immense value in hearing someone not necessarily give you all of the, the words and definitions and, and explain how this logically fits together, but rather just to hear someone's life experience. And for me, and I think you'll probably agree, um, one of the most formative pieces of, of my journey since beginning it um, wasn't when I was a teen. It wasn't when I was in college. It's been since I got out of college and started working as a youth director or youth pastor in this church. And a lot of people have different views of youth ministry, like, oh, so you babysit or, oh, you like eat a lot of pizza or you play a lot of games. Those are both true. <laughs> a lot of people make fun of me because they're like, ah, that's funny that you're in youth ministry because like you don't really like planning games and all of those <laughs> gimmicks. And I think that those are sometimes necessary, but largely distracting from what happens and what I value most. And honestly, like the teens that I have the privilege to work with as much as they make fun of me for being bald and wearing socks with my Birkenstocks, um, <laughs> you know, they, they challenge my faith. They are asking questions at 13, 14 and 15 that I didn't start even thinking about until I was 20, 21, 22. Mm -hmm. So part of me thinks, wow, was I just stupid compared to these people? <laughs> um, are kids just smarter now than they were before? TikTok must really be teaching a lot. Um, but it's, it's humbling because I recognize these kids are processing things that weren't even on my radar. And some of those things are challenging to me even. But that, that kind of deep reflection 
coming from the mouth of a teenager who then 10 seconds later like tries to eat something that touched someone else's armpit to <laughs> make you laugh uh, so it's always you got to take it in spurts <laughs> but they just drop these like wisdom bombs on you and you're like how do i deal with this and that's yeah. been some of the most moving stuff and the moving experiences and stories that have shaped me over the last four or five years because it just is a, a firm reminder that even as you don't have it all figured out, um, you can still have a thriving faith. And I think those of us that grew up in that rigid framework for so long, we don't know how to conceive of it without it being a rigid thing. Mm. And I think maybe that foundation is good to start with, but we need to learn how to let some of those doors be open and some of those walls get moved out a little bit. Yeah. As we move into the, as we move into the, book discussions that we're going to be getting into. One of the things Roar talks about a lot is like holding tension. And I think that's really helpful language for it is that we don't necessarily give up on the people or all of the things that came from the past. And we don't necessarily go whole hog on the other side of things, but we hold tension somewhere in the middle to not only help ourselves, but also to help those in, in all of those places as we, as we move forward. And I think like you were saying about kids, and how uh, they ask questions that <laughs> we never asked growing up because they're super easy questions. And we're like, man, that's crazy. But I think it just goes to show how connected to a faith community you are and the, the openness of the faith community uh, or lack thereof can really dictate uh, a lot of things for people. And so I don't necessarily blame myself or you or, or even the I don't blame any individuals really uh, along the way. Uh, sure, there's people who make terrible decisions and grave mistakes sometimes for other people in their stories. I don't specifically have those, um, but I do hold the community accountable for those things and saying like, hey, this is something that we need to kind of challenge as a, as a group of people um, to move forward. So hopefully this has been somewhat helpful to hear just kind of the hearts behind us and, and the stories behind where we come from. Um, yeah, Mike, it was great to kind of interweave our stories together. Yeah, it really was affirming to know that you grew up way more committed to Jesus than me, but <laughs> in the lifelong race, you know, I'm further ahead. Even yeah, probably. Though, um, you can see more of my head. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been fun, yeah. man. I appreciate just some of the good questions you asked. And like Cole said, we hope that in our sharing our own stories, one, that you get a little insight into where we are coming from, both mm -hmm. where we started, where we find ourselves now. And then we also hope that some part of this experience that we both had resonates with you. Maybe you are not deconstructing you're in that firm comfortable place maybe you have deconstructed and you feel like it's terrible and maybe you're trying to build it up again and you don't know where to go that's really we hope that some part of our stories have have been able to click with you in some way yes and next week get ready because we have our first installment of the wisdom pattern chapters one and two uh, where we're going to reflect on those a little bit but thank you so much for listening to this if you liked what you hear, we would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review um, anywhere you're listening to this. Anything less than four stars makes baby Jesus cry. Bye-bye. See you later. We'll talk to you next time.